nobody believes me, but it felt so weird for me and it was just not, it wasn't me. So again, I had this situation where this is as good as it's going to get for me. It's a startup that has huge amounts of funding, millions in funding, millions of users, products are all well received and are all taking off. There's a role for me if I want it. And I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. Already a musician upon entering college, Rob Hamilton knew he really wanted to understand sound. By adding study in cognitive science and stumbling into a hidden electronic music studio, he learned more deeply about what is central to sound and our perception of it. It took a career in technology, though, to launch him into the area where he could pull it all together and make it his own. Find out how interweaving interests and playing by your own rules often leads to the sweetest music on today's Roads Taken with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley. I'm here today with Rob Hamilton, and we are going to talk about how we intersect with the things that feed our soul and feed all of our senses and how you put those together. So welcome, Rob. Thanks. It's a, it's great to be here. So we start these the same way every time, and I ask the same two questions, which are, when we were in college, who were you? And when we were getting ready to leave, who did you think you would become? Great questions. In college, I was a music and cognitive science double major. Uh, I spent a lot of time playing music in a band uh, called Fat Dog Fred, which was was the name of our band at the time, which was was a lot of good fun playing guitars and singing. I let's see. I was also uh, I was a member of the squash team. I was a member of uh, the SIU fraternity, and I guess that defines me as a Dartmouth 96, right? Yeah, but when, so how did you find that combination? I know it was kind of an official combination, but how did you find that niche combination of cognitive science and music? I always wanted to be a music major. I always wanted to study music. I was a uh, musician growing up. I played piano since the time I was three in classical piano uh, up until college, jazz saxophone in ensembles up through college. And I taught myself how to play guitar like everyone else in high school and started writing songs. And this was this was my thing. And, and I loved it. In retrospect, for some strange reason, I went to Dartmouth. Of course, I wanted to study music. I wanted to learn more about it. Music theory, music, you know, what is this thing we, we call music? At the same time, I had this longstanding interest in technology, which in the mid-90s, right, technology was this crazy, horrible thing, right? It was no good in a sense. All of us can remember the computers we went to uh, Hanover with. But I grew up with early computer systems and always wanted to learn how to manipulate them and hack them. And, And I wasn't a great computer science student at all. My worst grade at, in college was in computer science, oh. um, which I tell all my students now, which is hilarious to them. I just didn't get it, what you were supposed to do with these words and these symbols and how they somehow magically became this thing that, I don't know, played a game or or made sound even. But what I did find at Dartmouth was the, uh, the Bregman Electroacoustic Labs, which many people don't know, but Dartmouth's faculty in composition and electronic music were world-renowned and have a, a firm place in history. Uh, John Appleton uh, was a co-inventor of the Synclavier, this massive computer-driven uh, synthesizer system that you know we all could remember people like John Tesh playing, and uh, you know Stevie Wonder would be the kind of person who had one of these, and they're fabulously expensive and incredibly powerful. And they had one of these there, and and I, I I took some classes and started messing around with it, and my head just exploded. 
right? This is not the, the little Macintosh computer making bleeps and bloops. This was this giant computer that you could make samples, record samples with and manipulate them in all these crazy ways. And it was insanely fun. So uh, I was hooked at that point and I wanted to make music. I also wanted to learn about why we listen to music and how we listen to music and what does it mean for our brains to hear these things and understand patterns from them and feel, feel emotion through this thing that's just sound um, that isn't fundamentally you know, language, but is so similar in so many ways. And so at Dartmouth, uh, you know, the studies in cognitive science had, had begun at that point. You know, cognitive science was still a relatively new field, starting to understand how to make computer models of the brain and really kind of basic ways compared to what we can do now with machine learning and things. But really, you know, Dartmouth was a great place for this. And so there was at the same time, you know, a burgeoning interest among faculty there in understanding music cognition. So how our brains worked. And so this idea of doing two majors rather than just one, and it, it really appealed to me. And so that's how I kind of got hooked up in that world. And really, it was fascinating. And the Synclavier and all of that, that was just a stumble upon, oh my gosh, I'm in this place. That wasn't actually what drew you to Dartmouth. Oh, not at all. I had no idea when I, when I applied to Dartmouth that they had anything like that which in retrospect, I probably should have, right? You know. Well, not um, really, because wasn't it like tucked behind top lift? In it definitely some... was. It, it still is a oh. little room, a little building uh, in between the gymnasium and whatever, and, and the, like the hop New kind Ham. of whatever yeah. that little building. I don't even remember what the, the building's yeah. called. But uh, really uh, just incredible. And the faculty there, um, other people, if anyone would remember a composer named Charles Dodge, who's actually a fantastic and, and incredibly important figure in electronic music and a composer named Larry Polanski, who many of us would have, if you ever took composition lessons or songwriting classes, Larry taught those. And Larry's just a, a fantastic musician, incredible person who I've had the fortune to run into over the years being my field now. Uh, so it's really fun for me. That's great. That's great. Well, don't get too far ahead because we have a long way to go. So that leads me to you have these two branches of the same tree, or at least the tree that you're tending of figuring out what music really is. How do I use this new tech and what are our brains doing with it? Yet, I'm not really good in computer science. So sticking with this different kind of science. Where does that leave you at graduation? What are the options for someone with these interest skills and, you know, what's the next step? I remember having a discussion with my father at the time, who was quite the pragmatist, and uh, me being uh, less pragmatic. The idea being that cognitive science would uh, give me skills that maybe would make me employable, right? You know, <laughs> looking around uh, nearing graduation, you know, the bulk of my friends joining investment banks and being doctors or, you know, planning to go into medical school or law school. None of those things were appealing to me at all. None of them were interesting to me. I didn't really see a clear path forward in music, which is perhaps not surprising, right? You know, music is this strange thing. You know, you can study it, you can learn all about it. And, it, you know, if you want to strike out and become a touring musician, well, you know, you probably shouldn't have gone to Dartmouth in the first place. Maybe, you know, you should have done something else, gone somewhere else. But also for me, my interests in technology with music, if you remember the computers we had at that time, you couldn't just go home with your little Mac 5300 laptop <laughs> with the track wheel on it and 
record music at home like all of us can now on whatever computer or phone mm -hmm. or watch we're using, right? <laughs> it just wasn't possible at the time. So I kind of thought, well, maybe that's kind of it for now. You know, I can't, I don't have a synclavier. I don't have one of these fantastical setups like they would have there. I can't really do this kind of work anymore. So strangely enough, I, I did some job interviews, you know, the, the companies that came through Dartmouth. There was actually a, a consulting firm called American Management Systems, where the principal in this company, he was a Dartmouth alum, very gung-ho Dartmouth guy. And he wanted to hire some good old Dartmouth boys. And I guess that's what they thought I was. I interviewed well, I think. Uh, I had no idea what a consulting firm was. Honestly, I had no idea what I was doing. And they enthusiastically hired me to Fairfax, Virginia. I went and I put on a suit. I acted as the liaison between software engineers and clients. If any of you have seen the movie Office Space, there's that <laughs> classic line in there where the person says, you know, what do you do here? Well, I, I take the documents from the engineers and I bring them to the, to the clients. Back. <laughs> it, it felt like that. It, it felt like that. It really did. You know, I worked in consulting for government and large financial corporations, managing procurement systems. I mean, I mean, really sexy stuff. Uh, <laughs> Were you playing music at the time? Like your own? And what kept me sane during all of this was that I, I was living in, in Northern Virginia and Washington, D.C. Washington is a fantastic city, anyone who knows it, of course. Um, with a great music history. And yeah, so I started some bands and I would play band music, in, you know, after work and, you know, gigs and had a great time. I started writing a lot of music and my poor bandmates, I was a tyrant with them, uh, probably because that's what I really wanted to do. Right. Our bands weren't any good, but they were super fun. And it, it did keep me kind of involved with music. And after a while, you know, I, I clearly realized that the consulting business wasn't for me. And at that time, I had friends at the company, The Motley Fool. And in the late 90s, they were this, this super hip, you know, post startup in Old Town Alexandria, you know, koosh balls in the office and, and video games and all, free coffee and all those things that seem, you know, so startup-y and great at the time. And so I said to myself, well, if there was ever a job like this that I want to do, this would be the place. So I went there and it was super fun. You know, it was all those things. It was the greatest group of people and young and energetic. And we played games and we drank coffee. And, you know, I, I, I learned how to write software, which was great. I had transitioned into this more of a technical role and at that time and learned on the job. So creatively, the technology for those kind of jobs was really interesting to me until I learned how to do it. <laughs> so when you when you were learning how to do it and it was it, you didn't get it at school, it was like, I just don't get it. Now you get it and yet you're not into it. Well, I get it. And then I realized, OK, I got it. Now what? Yeah. So um, thankfully, at, so around this time, I, I had a, a band that was actually pretty good, did some recording, um, played a lot of shows, really fun. The kind of music I really enjoy, kind of this hard rock, you know, loud screaming, almost metal kind of stuff. Really fun, but at the same time, probably not going to continue. The, the stars aligned and made my decisions for me. Uh, in the late 90s, the ad market for internet-based companies bottomed out. And The Motley Fool was one of those companies who went from making you know pennies on an ad show to 
micro pennies on an ad click and their entire economy collapsed. So the company laid off, you know, 120 tech people. I think I, I made it through the first two rounds of layoffs, then got laid off, went to the UK, uh, visited some family, uh, hung out, strangely got a call from the company. They hired me back after uh, three months because they had needed people to run their servers. I came back, worked for another X number of months, and then they laid everybody off mm -hmm. down to a bare bones, I think eight employees at the time. So at that point, I said, you know, this was great. I did it. I did the company that was as perfect for me as it could have been. And you know what? I'm glad it's over. So at that time, I was living in, in D.C., just up the road from Washington in you know, sunny Baltimore is this fabulous music conservatory, the Peabody uh, Institute or Peabody Conservatory, depending on which, which kind of century you're in, is the oldest conservatory in the United States with a fascinating, you know, faculty. Uh, Leon Fleischer was there for piano, you know, monster of American music, really kind of classical conservatory. So for me, you know, loving music, I was like, well, this this could be interesting. So they actually had a program in electronic music composition. And so at this point, I knew about all this stuff. My legacy from Dartmouth actually made me really interesting to the, the faculty there because mm -hmm. I had worked with these pioneers in the field and I had used, you know, the, these tools that people had, you know, only read about really like the Synclavier. And at this point I could program like a beast, right? And, you know, I, I had, I had chops, which I didn't as a student, I understood how to just take code and do something with it. Now we call that creative coding in the nineties. It was just doing weird stuff with computers that nobody understands. So I, I actually did a master's degree in music composition, what's called computer music. So how do we use computers to make music, perform music, write music, analyze music, understand music? Sounds a lot like music and cognitive science and the, the yeah. kinds of things that. So uh, I did that. And so with that, I, I, I stepped away from, uh, or at least so I thought, I stepped away from kind of, you know, corporate America's for almost good, you know. Yeah. Okay. Well, you just gave me a tantalizing question. Or so I thought. So I know where you end up, which is actually I'm looking at a studio full of some acoustic, but a lot of wires. So tell me what happens. You get the masters. I go to the conservatory and I'm surrounded by musicians. Um, everybody, the halls are literally filled with music. Every student is the best person I've ever heard on an instrument. I instantly realize I'm no longer a pianist a guitarist, a singer, or a saxophone player, because I can't, I'm not anywhere in this league. And for the general public, I am. Most people think, oh, well, you're really good. No, I'm not, not compared to these people. So what I was, was I was a composer. And I was a composer with, in this kind of area where you write music, where performers work with computers, maybe, in real time. Um, using programming languages that can take the audio signal that the instrument's playing and manipulate it in real time, push it around to speakers around. You do kind of these, these really cool and novel things with sound that weren't possible when I was an undergraduate, but were definitely possible in 2002, 2003, 2004. So, uh, 
you know, I was a fish in water at a place like this. Like it, it was the best thing ever for me. And technology had gotten to the point where I could do all this stuff on the laptop. In 2000, you know, we had the, the black Mac, uh, you know, OS 10 had come out for, for Macintosh, which was this, you know, Linux-based operating system that meant I could get in there and manipulate it in really interesting ways. And so I learned these specific programming languages and was just off. And I was writing music and I was writing software, having a great time. From there, uh, you know, I, I learned about this academic world of music and technology, and I saw these paths forward. And I learned about um, some places that I might want to go in the future. I really wanted to go to this PhD program at Stanford, the Center for Computer Research in Music and Acoustics, or mm-hmm. CARMA, C-C-R-M-A, CARMA, get it. I, I knew that was the place for me. And I applied, and I got waitlisted, and I didn't get in. And I said, oh, crap. Uh, hmm. Okay. So what I did was I enrolled in a program in France. I went to Paris for a year. And I worked in a music studio in Alfreville, just south of Paris. And I studied electronic music in the studio of a composer named Yanis Zanakis, who's an incredibly famous Greek-French composer, um, who built again in one of these you know novel electronic systems? Um, I studied with composers there. I, I did a, a course with students of Nadia Boulanger, who's a, a famous pedagogue who trained composers for years. Who passed away, of course, at this point. So I wrote a lot of music, and I worked on electronics, and I lived in Paris and drank wine and, and ate bread and cheese. It's great, of course. And I reapplied to Stanford, and I said, you know, I know this is, this is totally going to work this year. I got waitlisted again. But what they said was, hey, we have a master's program here. You want to come do that? I said, well, I already have a master's degree. This is strange. <laughs> but it was different. It was a different degree. And this is really was the place. This is the, the premier program in the world for this kind of thing. And I said, you know, I, I can swing this. I can swing. It's just one year. You know, it was I, I had money saved up. So um, I did it. So I moved out to California, sunny Palo Alto. And I, I did this intensive one-year master's degree and got my head blown off again by, because these guys are, this was, this was it. This was the, I mean, what I thought was blowing my head off before was just kind of, that got you in the door. These, this was where the real work was done. Um, the Karma Lab at Stanford was where FM synthesis was created, um, which is what powered um, you know, all the synthesizers in the 1980s. Um, at the time, that was the second largest patent that Stanford had ever received. And uh, it was uh, created by a composer named John Chowning, who took that money and founded this lab. So this this was the place. Had a blast, wrote a lot of music, uh, wrote a lot of software, and applied for the PhD program. And, you know, it would be, it would be nice to say that I, I just got in, but again, to get waitlisted. No! It's incredibly comp- uh, a hard program to get into, two students a year, fully funded. My advisor at the time, who was the director, said, we really want you in the program. We, I'm trying to get funding for a third uh, candidate. And, you know, comes down to the wire the last week, and he says, you know what, we don't have the funding. Oh. And I just said, oh, man, I'm, I'm in trouble. And, you know, I, 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 part of this whole thread is I didn't, I applied to other programs and I didn't really get into them because with a one-year program, I was really applying with all the same materials I had, had uh, when I entered, not much had changed at the beginning of the year. 
But they offered me a job. They offered me a, a position where I would stay around. I would uh, run a concert series. I would maintain, you know, there some labs. I would do work. Essentially, what I learned later was this is the way they keep people around until they can figure out what to do. So I spent a year uh, working it, there. I did also did kind of web contracting on the side because I could, you know, as a way to, to pay the bills. And, you know, the next year rolled around and I said, you know, damn it, I'm going to do this again. So I applied to Stanford again and I applied to a whole bunch of other programs. At this point, finally, I start getting into places. My, you know, I had done enough work that, you know, and my I guess my name had had gotten out there and I had known enough people at this point that uh, I, I got some offers and, and I actually did get an offer to Stanford. And so I stayed there because okay. it was great. <laughs> So, so yeah, that's the, uh, the long, the long tease on that. Uh, so, so in, and this is at this point, I'm, I can't even remember how old I was at that point, but right. You know, I was no spring chicken. I was not, you know, a student coming out of college. But neither were the other people that were in this program. I mean, they, which, which right? is actually completely true. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Actually, most of my classmates were at pretty much my same age. Yeah. So it was not as strange as I thought it was, but I, you know, I didn't know. So I was, I became a PhD candidate at Stanford in, in this lab in the music department. So it's a PhD in music. And I thought that was it. I thought, great, I'm going to do a PhD. I'm going to be in academia. This will be really smooth sailing. It's be really straightforward. I understand it, right? I'm going to, I'm going to write music. I'm going to write software. I'm going to write papers about it. And I'm going to, you know, get a tweed blazer with elbow patches <laughs> and, and, you know, smoke a pipe, Right. For a while, that that's what seemed like was happening, and so for until about 2000, actually it wasn't that long in retrospect. Maybe about 2007, 2000, you know, it was about 2007. So I guess I I started around just maybe about half a year after I started the PhD. My good friend and our a new assistant professor in that program, his name is Go Wong. He came from Princeton. Yeah, exactly. Ge had been messing around with mobile phones and how do you make music on mobile phones? And we had a mobile phone orchestra. It was, it was fun. Um, and we were using these Nokia N95 phones, which were pre-smartphones, right? This was the year before the smartphone came out. Um, and we, we were writing bad software on these weird little Nokia phones because Nokia just give us boxes of them because it was Stanford. So we did this and it was hilarious. And then Apple came out with this thing called an iPhone, right? And it was this little amazing multi-touch computer that you could do the, all this stuff on and it, had, it was fast and it could actually compute audio in real time like the Synclavier used to, right? I mean, that's literally what we were talking about at this point on a phone. And Gut, to his credit, understood that this was a real opportunity. And he and my a colleague of mine named Jeff Smith, who was a serial entrepreneur in Silicon Valley, but had he sold a company called Tumbleweed, I believe, which was a uh, some internet security firm or something, made lots of money and wanted to be a, a, a musician and a PhD candidate. So he had you know, enrolled in our program and then got bored and wanted to start a company. So Jeff and Gud decided to start a company on this new platform called mobile, you know, called the iPhone um, and making mobile music devices, whatever that meant at the time software for these things. So, um, you know, me being around all the time and working with, with Gah on, on fun projects, um, inevitably I got roped into this, you know, kind of in the pre-venture stage. We were working out of the offices at Bessemer Ventures in, you know, kind of a big VC firm in, in Silicon Valley in Palo Alto. Uh, and uh, we just were hacking around on these things, trying to figure out what you would do. And we made a bunch of weird little apps 
I mean, this is when the app store had, you know, a couple hundred apps in it, not a couple <laughs> right. billion. Right. Um, we, we made the, the greatest lighter uh, that was out there, supposedly, the, you know, a lighter app, right, that you would hold up your phone, but you could I, blow it out. Yes, you, I you had could, it. It's called had that Sonic one. Lighter. You know, we, we won an award for being the best lighter. We beat Zippo. I remember that. That was an amazing feature. But this was, this was actually kind of a subversive plot. It was, if the, this application was super cool because when you lit it, you could see everyone else in the world who was lighting their phone at the same time on a global map. And it used sound to let you light someone else's phone with yours. It was like a modem. It's called the Sonic Modem. And this was actually uh, just kind of a, a Trojan horse, in a sense, this app, for what came a few apps later, which was an app called Ocarina, which was this instrument you blew into your phone and played it like an ocarina. And that took off like gangbusters. It became the number one app in the store, you know, millions and millions. This is when we still sold apps for a dollar. And it, uh, you know, it, it be, when it entered Apple's Hall of Fame apps, you know, best apps. And that was actually what the company was founded to do, you know, not these kind of funny little apps we did first. It was, that was it. And my role there was, you know, like any startup, just you do everything, you know, whether it's software or design or marketing or filming videos or making demos. Um, but actually what I did was I started writing these software systems that let the users make music and let them write music and share it. I wrote a score format so you could write Ocarina scores and share them online. And that blew up. And so it started bringing people into the site and more people, you know, they take Lady Gaga songs and put them on the website. And since the users did it, the company wasn't liable. Right. This was right? like the you Napster know. age, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, it was, it was definitely related to that idea. You know, things took off. That company got big, is big. I stayed there for about five years, all the while still a PhD candidate. Stanford's very lax about these things, as you can imagine. Apps like I Am T-Pain, um, where you would sing using auto-tune like T-Pain. Uh, we did that with T-Pain and his crew. That was super fun. An app called Magic Piano, a Glee karaoke app. We used to work with Fox every week and get new stems from the, uh, from the TV show and put them in. Real fun stuff. And all along, my role became, I, I wrote all the music for these. And so for the piano app, if you played that in the first eight years, I wrote all the music for it. So all the scores of it, I did transcriptions. Eventually I became, you know, a manager hiring people. Um, and so I, I then became kind of mid-level management in this, this startup. And lo and behold, it, I was pretty much back where I had been, right? I was back in this kind of corporate game, you know, having lunches with, with strange VC dudes and, uh, you know, not wearing ties because it's Silicon Valley, but wearing hoodies and jeans and flip-flops, which was the suit and tie of Silicon Valley. And, you know, nobody believes me, but it, it felt so weird for me. And it was just not, it wasn't me. It wasn't. So again, I had this situation where this is as good as it's going to get for me. It's a startup that has huge amounts of funding, millions in funding, millions of users. You know, the products are all well-received and are all taking off. There's a role for me if I want it. I would be comfortable in a place like Palo Alto, which is frightfully expensive. And I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. So, <laughs> so uh, I, I did what any, any good uh, artist would do. And I, I quit and I finished my PhD and then, you know, turned my back, knock on wood, turned my back on non-academic pursuits forever. We'll see. 
Yeah, yeah, because you have found yourself that is cr- a crazy road for I, for so many reasons because there's the tenacity issue like I'm going to do this. I'm not exactly even sure why I need to do this, but I need to do it and I'm going to keep knocking on the door and get in the back door and stay with the door open and get to it. And then there's okay, now that I'm here, I have this breathing room to be able to try out these really cool things, but then to have the self-knowledge that this looks like success from every other angle. And why doesn't it feel like that? That's a true testament to you know who you are when you can do that. That's a really interesting point. And and it's kind of something I talk to, to students about these days in that it's really important to know what you don't like, right? You know, we, we all know that kind of truism, but for me, I, I'm, I'm super stubborn, right? You know, it's just part of who I am. And I want to experience the thing and grow to hate it to know that I'll hate it, even though I might hate it. You know, mm. I kind of know that, that I'm going to hate it. But, you know, there's something about it. So let's go, let's go and see. But for me, sometimes I do that for years. And I don't know, it may not, it may not work for everybody. But then when I'm done with it, I know I'm done with it. Like I, yeah. knew, I, I knew I was done with that. But for, there were, I mean, it's not just finding something I know I'm going to hate later. It's like there are elements of it that did feed your soul and were really interesting to figure out because no one's ever done this. And not only is it really using that technical skill that you developed, the musical skill that you already had, but this idea that you started with, which is what is music? And what is it about music that does so many other things from the emotion to the sharing, the cultural thing of it? Like there are elements of it that really spoke to who you were, but it's it's finding that moment. You were the one that said it first, not me, that, you know, ever the artist to say, I'm done with this. You know, often we we think of these artists like shooting themselves in the foot because it's not true to my art. Well, that's not what it is, because you had these moments of of the art the whole time. But there was something that didn't feel true once you'd done it. And I think that's that's pretty remarkable. That, that's a nice way to put it. Um, the, for me, I, I think about there, there are these restrictions. And for, art has always, and art and music, you know, as my art, has always been this thing that is, is sacred to me. It's, and I grew up on these stories of artists who lost control of their music, right? You know, people like John Fogarty from Creedence Clearwater Revival, who famously lost control of his catalog, and he just never played these songs again. Now, for anyone who writes music, these songs are your children, right? This is, this is really important stuff. That always stuck with me from a young age. You know, if I ever did something, I always wanted to be able, it was mine. You know, I, I didn't want someone else to be able to do something with it that I, I couldn't. And it's not that anything I was doing was going to make money. It was, it's not about someone else, you know, getting all the money from my music. It's just fundamentally, I don't want a restriction. That, that's important. And with the, you know, the working for a company that has to make money, you can be creative. And Smule was this great, you know, experience in creating things and seeing what happens when millions of people use the thing you, you do. That's, you, that's priceless. You can't buy that. But there's a cost to that, which is the next thing has to now reach a, 2 million people. And if there's this other thing that you really want to do, if some people determine that that won't make as much money, you're not going to be allowed to do it. And that's the thing that 
fundamentally, I just looked at it and I say, I know this is really, this might be the, a terrible decision, but I can't, I can't do that. I, I want to do this stupid, weird thing. I don't want anyone to tell me I can't. So yeah. that's kind of what led me out of that area. And led you to academic freedom where you have, you know, at, at some level, you get to call a lot of your own shots and the things that you create are yours. That it's exactly right. So then I did what every good newly minted PhD does is I, I applied for about 400 jobs. And luckily, Rensselaer Polytech in Troy, New York, was hiring for a avant-garde music technologist who also specialized in gaming. Because a lot of my research had to do with game engines and, and how do we make sound and control sound in virtual spaces, whether it's VR or kind of you know regular video games. And I'm a, I'm a longtime gamer uh, as well. This is a, a world that had become part of my technology repertoire. So hacking old video games and using them to control, you know, modern technology, music technology systems, driving lots of speakers with Quake 2, you know, these you know, <laughs> things like that. Um, and it turned out that I had made a place for myself in academia doing that as kind of the guy who does that stuff. Hilariously, the, the job posting for, for RPI was... Essentially, they took my bio and wrote a job position. And uh, I mean, that's what it seemed like, right? right you know? And right. so I got calls from all around the world from people saying, from people who you know ran programs in universities and are, I've respected my whole career and said, hey, have you heard of this job? You should apply for this. <laughs> so it almost was kind of a fait accompli um, that that I would get this job. I, mean, I went and interviewed for it. It was great. Um, it's a, a, a program run by kind of, you know, bizarre techno hippies um, who make insane art and music and social, you know, commentary and all within, you know, an engineering school. So, you know, in some ways it's kind of... Yeah. I mean, so much more perfect than koosh balls and free coffee, right? That really speaks to your soul of who you are and who you've become, I would say. It's been great. So uh, I've been here for six years now. I, I just got tenure. Yay! So I'm now, I'm now an associate professor of music and media. But it's exactly what you said. I have almost complete freedom over what I do. I'm supposed to research. I'm supposed to write music. I'm supposed to travel the world and have performances. I'm supposed to uh, record. I'm I, the classes I teach are all things that I choose. I teach classes in music and technology. I teach classes in music and games. I, I have an ensemble of electronic musicians who writes and plays music in VR using Raspberry Pi microcomputers and lots of speakers, and we just have a blast. My job is to do all these things and then think about them and write about them and, you know, write in journals and write in books and, and, and give talks about them. So, yeah, uh, it's all the things that you said. Right. And so when we were when you were talking about that Ph.D. program and how people were your age and that was surprising to you, we we hadn't talked about that. I, I just assumed because it sounded like you would it would take so long to amass the knowledge that you would need and the skill different skill set that you would need to even start that pursuit. But now that I'm thinking, have you seen a shift, though? Because the kids that are growing up now did not grow up with those clunky Macs with the little handle at the back. And, you know, they they grew up after iPhones. So yeah. so what are what's the skill level that you're seeing coming in or even not just skill level, but kind of approach to life that's different from ours? 
It's so different. I mean, you know, the the age of my students now, my undergraduates, right, eighteen year olds, is you know we we're at that that perfect age, right? They there are many of us who have children at that age or approaching that age. They have grown up immersed in technology. That's a good thing and a bad thing, though. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the way they approach information and what you learn and what you just look up is really different than what we had to. Um, so the things that you know versus the things that you can Google, right? The one thing that I found fascinating is not all kids are good programmers. I just assumed they were. I, I showed up at, at an engineering school and I beat the hell out of my kids with programming assignments for the first year until I realized not all of them were coders. Mm -hmm. I just assumed, right? You know, and, and part of that is generational in that, you know, I assumed they had this great understanding of computers. Well, they're all great users of technology, right, right? right? Definitely. They know how to open a browser and find something. You know, they're not like, you know, our parents' generation who literally can't type on the keyboard maybe, but they don't necessarily have a deep understanding of these issues yet, right? It's not at all the world we came from. You know, our generation crossed over the digital divide. We came from analog and have, you know, now found ourselves in digital and we're, we're pretty well situated on that, that split. So about half of our lives has been digital and about half of it was analog. And for this generation that's purely digital, it's, it's really different. Yeah. So going back to the other 18-year-old, the you 18-year-old, you knew you were already a musician. You knew you thought tech was cool, but we didn't really know what tech meant. If you could go back to him with kind of a word from the future, what would you say and what would his response be? If I thought that where I ended up is where he should end up, I definitely would tell him that he could shave a decade off of that search if he just went and actually, you know, learned how to compile code in a C++ class at Dartmouth uh, <laughs> instead of just, you know, failing miserably. I've always enjoyed taking my time to learn things. And sometimes that has worked and sometimes that stretches things, right? And it took me a really long time to gain some of the skills that in retrospect, I probably could have gained much more quickly. And then I think I would tell that kid to kind of open his eyes a little bit more. Think about what you want to do and, and think about how you could take this thing that you know, you know, you love music. Right? You know, I, I've always known I love music. Um, and there had to be something, there had to be a way forward and spend more time actively thinking about it rather than just kind of passively wondering what could you maybe do with this, which maybe, maybe that's what I'd tell him. Yeah, but I think... You even said you like to take time learning those things. And what what might have you lost if you didn't take the time? And some of those byways where you had to just, okay, now's the time I'm going to learn this. Maybe that was the right time to learn it. I was just thrilled that you shared that story with us. And it seems like exactly where you're supposed to be. Hopefully. We'll see. We'll see what the next 10 years bring. That's right. That's right. Well, thanks so much, Rob, for being with us. Thank you. This is great. That was Rob Hamilton, Associate Professor of Music and Media at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, where he's been since 2015, composing, performing, researching, and designing software for interactive soundscapes. We're so pleased he joined us to kick off the second year of the podcast. If you haven't already, please follow us at roadstakenshow.com or wherever you get your podcasts so you can access our episode catalog and can join me, Leslie Jennings Rowley, for upcoming episodes of Roads Taken. <laughs>